It was really interesting as I interviewed Dr. Joseph. What I learned is that the things that I have been learning through these interviews with students have helped me really be a much better teacher. And a lot of what Dr. Joseph said was really interesting for me because much of the things that I need to be a better teacher for my students are the same things that teachers need from administrators to be better teachers, it really is truly a trickle-down effect. Some of the things that I thought were really great in this interview with Dr. Joseph, he acknowledged his struggle with understanding the nuances of pronouns, respecting students, letting students tell him the things that he needed to work on. podcast education unimagined where give students an opportunity to share their voice in a system where often their voice is unheard i ask them to share their experience and advice on how we can improve the experience for everyone I'm going to start with welcoming you, Dr. Joseph, to the podcast, Education Unimagined. And I would love for you to begin by giving us a little intro to who you are and what your goals are for your educational experience. Wow. I love your title, Education Unimagined. I think we're still educating 21st century kids with 20th century models, which is not good, obviously. I don't know how well we're preparing them for the world that they're going to live in in 2040, 2050, 2060. So I love your title. I do think that we, in a lot of ways, as a K-12 community, missed a golden opportunity to rethink how we're educating our kids during the pandemic. And instead of imagining a different way of educating our students, I think we're trying as much as possible to just go back to the status quo, which is not good to me. I've been in K-12 education since 1994. I started off as a teacher and a coach. Truthfully, did not have any intentions on being a K-12 educator. I actually wanted to be a lawyer. I was a pre-law major in college, and I had the opportunity to sub. I really loved it. I just felt like I was a fish in water. I knew how to manage a class. I knew how to connect with the students. And it was just something that was super natural for me. I just felt like it was something that I really loved. Also, an opportunity to coach. And I really felt like I was in heaven. But I was conflicted, obviously, because all of my life, I just thought I was headed toward being a, a lawyer one day. I actually heard law school for one year. I'll teach for a year, and then I'll go back to law school. So, Lorraine, I guess I'm still in deferred status because <laughs> I never made it back to law school, and that was 28-plus years ago. I taught for 12 years before I became an administrator, and for the last almost 17 years, I've been a, a school administrator. This is what I was put on this earth to do, and I love it. When I was a teacher and a coach, I was having an impact on my classroom and on the teams that I coached. Now as a school administrator, I have over 1,200 students and over 100 staff members. I feel like I'm having a greater impact on students and staff members' lives. I think your journey is not unique. And I think a lot of teachers who find themselves 
not struggling with classroom management, it's because they're able to forge and build those relationships with students. And you alluded that is a natural tendency for you to be able to build those relationships. Yeah, that's important. So speaking of relationships, tell me how you build relationships with students. Now that you're not in a classroom as an administrator, how do you build relationships with students? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like at its base, students don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I'll repeat that. Students don't care how much you know until they know how much you care about them specifically. And how did I transition from being a teacher where I was making those connections to being an administrator? And it is more difficult. I have 1,200 kids. It is, as we speak, almost January of the school year. And I don't know all 1,200 kids. And that's hard. I think the biggest thing for administrators is to make sure that they're visible and vocal, visible and vocal. And so every time we have a passing period, I'm out in the hallways, I'm speaking to students as they walk by. I've always made it very clear to my students that my door is always open to them. I am accessible. If you have a question, you have a concern, bring it to me. I'm in a brand new school this year. And so I am forging those connections. I've made it very clear to them that I'm not just going to talk it, I'm going to walk it. And so you will see me in the hallways. You will see me being visible and vocal, just really making those connections. I think it's also important as an administrator to support our students when we have events, whether it's a football game or swim meet, be there, be supporting them, be prideful of the fact that these students are participating. I think you bring up a critical thing as an administrator who has 1,200 kids. It's not as easy to know everybody's name as it used to be as an educator, but being visible was something that you said. And so I guess my follow-up question to you is, as you are visible and you're telling students that my door is open, how would you then define student voice? Great question. So For me, I I have an 80-20 rule as it relates to our students. I believe in most schools, I believe that 80% of those students are going to be okay no matter who their principal is, who their teachers are. They have a support network and they're going to be fine. So that the 20% are the students that really need our support and might not know that they need it, but there's some deficit in their life, whether it's like when you're an administrator, let's be honest, the students that have those issues, you learn them a lot quicker. So I've made it a point because I do know them by name. I know them by sight, right? But I'm also very cognizant of the fact that we are a big school and it's super important for students to get involved. I'll give you a good example. When I started at this school, I started a student advisory council. So that is something that allows our students to have voice, to be able to come to me. And I've always said, there's a reason why God gave us two ears and and one mouth. We, We should listen twice as much as we speak. And so it's very important for me to allow them to run that group. And they're asking me questions. They're setting the agenda. They're bringing up issues that concern them because what concerns us as adults might not necessarily concern students. Very important to also make sure that everyone is represented in the group. The very first meeting we had is everyone that should be represented, represented. 
by gender, by race, by socioeconomic, by LGBTQ. Is everyone that should be in the room represented? It is important to have groups like that in schools and to give students voice, and not just at the high school level, but this can be extended down to middle school as well as elementary. It's a small group, 15 students, but it also is representative of our entire student body. But we also have class meetings where there's a Q&A at the end of those meetings. So it gives students an opportunity to ask me and other administrators. You have really hit a nail on the head for me about how do we get everybody's voice in the room. And I am curious on your student advisory committee. It was very important for me to make sure that the the voiceless had a voice. For me, this is not a popularity contest. We want students that are representative of our student body, whatever that looks like. For me, being in a new school, it gave me an opportunity with the help of the staff by student leaders in the building without a title. Those are the kind of kids we want on the Student Advisory Council as well. I wanted to be very, very intentional on making sure every voice was represented in that group, making sure that all the different groups were represented. And I think we've done a good job. I want to pause and just really celebrate some of the things that you said. You are speaking my language about students who don't have a title are often student leaders. We do tap that top percent of students in most schools where they're on this committee, they're on this committee. But I think by giving a voice as you have really alluded to, it's really quite honestly very verbatim to when I propose to a school, if we want student leadership, I really need you to think outside of that that top group. So a follow-up question for you in that is when you talked about the 80-20 or any of those students that are in that 20% that you know their name, you know that they have challenges, would you say there are those students represented in this advisory committee? Super important to have that, honestly, because like I said, sometimes those students are your leaders, <laughs> maybe not leaders in a good way. And so what we try to tap into is the fact that, hey, you are a natural leader. Right now, you're not being a good role model for your peers because your leading is not leading in a good way. And so I just want to challenge you to be a part of a group like this. We often miss those leaders in, in helping shape them in a positive way and giving them an opportunity like the advisory board. I would say that often they don't they wouldn't define themselves as a leader, but really they are pretty incredible leaders. Has there been an opportunity where you or the students brought forward a challenge and you were able to engage with this? This group in a way that helped shape your decision or a response to a challenge for your school? Great questions. Issues that were brought to me by the Principal Student Advisory Council related to three two main hot button issues, race and equity issues, issues of sexual assault, which is really prevalent, I, I hate to say, in a lot of high schools and a lot of times go unreported or underreported and issues with LGBTQ as it relates to students. I'm 54 years of age. And I have this beautiful young student saying, I need you to refer to me as he and him. And I'm like, okay, I respect that. But it was super difficult. In my previous school, kids thought I was doing it on purpose. I wasn't respecting their use of the pronouns. I'm learning too. I respect whatever a student wants to be called in terms of their name whatever pronouns they want to use, but 
it is a learning curve. And for somebody as old as me, a steep learning curve. Did your student advisory board give you and your adults some guidance in the building on how to navigate that? I think about how the perception of the students that you were doing it not to be respectful. How did students help you navigate that? Because I think that's, like you said, a learning curve for us as adults. We do respect our students. And I think also there are adults out there that aren't respecting those requests from students. So what advice did the students give you? Well, first of all, they really felt like it was important to educate our staff. So what I did was I gave them space in our principal directed PD days to really have an opportunity to share whatever they wanted to share. They did a really good job of educating our staff on the evolution of uh, some of the things that we're dealing with today that we might not have dealt with as educators 10, 20 years ago. It is important to not just talk it, but walk it by giving them an opportunity to present, to share with our staff. I thought that was very important. Um, just really listening to the students on how can we balance making sure that we provide this safe space for our students, but also making sure that students are not taking advantage of it. I feel like it was important for them to know that I was going to hear them, but they needed to hear me as well in terms of how do we come together as a school community to really fix this issue. I think the approach of taking it from both the administrative point of view and the student point of view, you're going to get to a solution much faster than if it was just one direction. And I'm not saying that if we just let students make a decision that we would fix it even faster. I don't. I think you're right in saying that it has to come collectively, collaboratively from both points of view. What advice you might give to an educator on how to incorporate student voice into their classroom or into the school? Yeah. So one of the things that I'm a big believer in as it relates to being a teacher, and I always you know, share this with my teachers, is that they have to be a facilitator of the learning environment. Right. I tell teachers all the time, particularly my new teachers, if you're the most tired person in your class after a class period, then you're doing it all wrong. At the end of the day, if you're teaching chemistry, you've already learned chemistry. You have a chemistry degree or a science degree. Your job is to teach those students. So they should be doing the heavy lifting. You are facilitating that learning. But how does that learning look? It can't be just direct instruction. It has to be a situation where you, first of all, are doing really effective lesson planning, making sure that Whatever you're doing in that classroom keeps those students engaged. So even that is something totally different in 2022, 2023 from what we were dealing with in 2003. These students have so many things that are pulling for their time, so many things that are distractions. Every one of those students come into that classroom with a cell phone in their pocket or in their book bag or in their purse. And so it's super important to know that First of all, you are setting up your class so that you're not fighting against the technologies. You're incorporating those technologies so that the students stay engaged. I think that's super important to really embrace the technology that's out there. These kids are digital natives. They grew up with this technology. Teachers have to embrace the technology. They have to make sure that they are effectively planning their lesson. You cannot fool kids. They know when you're shooting from the hip. They know when you're not prepared. They know when you're just kind of winging it. And that's not helping those students become engaged. If I can be honest, I wish I had had an administrator like you because I saw myself as a facilitator and my classrooms looked messy and they looked 
loud. And I think for me, I wish I had had somebody who celebrated the use of embracing all of the things that were happening because I still feel that there is a lot of prevention in my classroom from the top saying, we don't want students to have this. We don't want students to have that. And one of the last things that I did before I left the classroom was I asked my students to engage with me on a class charter. What do you want this classroom to look like? How do you want to learn? How do you want me to help facilitate your learning and educate you. And I think for me, that was one of the greatest things that I did as an educator. And it wasn't until very late in my career. It's about building relationships. You're building a relationship with your educators. And and I really applaud that. What advice would you give to another administrator who says, Dr. Joseph, that seems counterproductive or that seems really hard to engage students that way? I like having the control that I have in my school. And it seems to work really well for me. What kind of advice would you give to that administrator? I get it. As an administrator, you you want to make sure that things are decent and in order. And that's just not the world we live in. Again, like I said, we have to be willing as adults to adapt. What worked in 2000 might not work in 2023. And so when I go into a classroom and I see a classroom that is, quote, messy, I don't look at it as messy. I look at it as organized chaos. It's chaos in a sense, but it's organized and the teacher is still facilitating what's going on. It really does come back to what I was stating earlier. You have to plan well for this. You can't be winging it. If you're winging it, it's not going to be organized chaos. It's going to be just chaos, right? If you have stations, if you have centers, if you have groups, it just needs to be hopping and you need to have a set plan. I'm not saying you have to stick with it lock stock, but it does need to be a situation where you do have an, a plan. And if you need to pivot, you can pivot. Right? But you can't pivot from one thing to another if you don't have a plan to pivot to. So I think it is important, again, on the front end to do what needs to be done from a lesson planning standpoint, and then you'll be fine. But as an administrator, I feel like it's important for our principals and our leaders in our schools to encourage that. If you don't encourage that, then you know, Mr. Smith, who's been teaching for 30 years, is not going to change. It's important for us to not only encourage it, but also be willing to model that. A lot of times school administrators are not willing to kind of roll up their sleeves and kind of model what that looks like. That's one of the things that we're really pushing for as well, is just making sure that we're not only inspecting what we expect, but also being willing to model for those staff members that need that additional support. Because that 80-20 rule applies with staff too. It's not just with students. I also think we need to always remember that as staff, we are just the caretakers. Schools in a lot of cases have been around for years and in some cases over 100 years. And so they've had many teachers come through those buildings. They've had many administrators come through those buildings. So that school was successful or existing before we came into that building. And that school is going to be existing after we leave that building. So I am a caretaker in that building. And it is important for me to make sure that I provide whatever is necessary to make sure that we have a successful school day, school week, school month, school year. How that looks is ever changing. What we need for the first week that we get back might be totally different from what we need in May. So it's very important for us to be willing to be flexible, to adapt and 
be willing to grow and learn. That's what this is all about. If we're truly educators, we don't need to stop learning. We need to keep learning as well. Just like we were teaching our students the same concepts and principles. So I think it's very important for us to embrace that as well. We're still learning, we're still growing, and we can't be stuck in 1995. If we're willing to grow, learn, adapt, then it makes it much easier for us if we're being honest. But we're creatures of habit as human beings and change is hard sometimes. But I feel like the teachers, the administrators, the staff that embrace that change are the ones that are the most successful. Yeah. And that goes back to something you said early on in the interview about teaching with a 20th century focus and really not being current with our type of education practices. I want to thank you for your time. I think you have a lot of valuable insight. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm happy to be a part of whatever I can do to contribute to the K-12 space. Tell me how people can find you if they are interested in collaborating with you or getting some guidance from you on how to improve their own practice. The best way to reach me truthfully is through LinkedIn and just search for Dr. Joseph Williams III. That's three eyes at the end, Dr. Joseph Williams III. I'm always talking to educators, not just in the U.S., but the world. I feel like we're the greatest profession in the world and we truly don't do enough collaborating across states and districts. And I'm happy to contribute to this space in any way that I can. That's awesome. And I will put all of that information in the show notes for people to reach out to you. And and I think that I know myself by doing this podcast, I've learned so much. And I think because you do your show, you have probably elevated your own practice by collaborating with people, like you said, all over the world. And I think education can be really isolating. Sure. And I think the more we talk to each other, the more we learn and the more we advance. So 100%. Yep. You're so right. I want to share an analogy about a basketball team. If you are creating a basketball team, the likelihood that you are going to stack your team with natural basketball athletes is pretty slim. You know, as a coach, that you have to train athletes to become better athletes. You have to coach them. You have to guide them. Leadership is the same thing. We have to train leaders. We have to guide leaders. We have to coach leaders. And if you or somebody you know is someone who could use some of those leadership trainings, I want to work with you. I want to work with students. I want to work with schools. I want to develop leadership and change the belief that leaders are born and that all leaders need a title. You can reach out to my website, Peers Not Fears, to find out more of the services that I offer. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast Unimagined. The theme music for this podcast, Unimagined, was written and produced by another fellow educator, Keith McClendon.